0: You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 003, with Mike Dever, founder and CEO of Brandywine Asset Management. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine
1: learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more.
0: Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I really do appreciate it. On today's show, I'm talking to Mike Dever, the founder and CEO of Brandywine Asset Management. Mike's been trading for almost four decades and shares a wealth of insight to how he has stayed successful and how his trading approach and research has stayed current in an ever-changing financial landscape. For those of you who are new to the show, I just want to let you know that you can find all of the show notes, including a full transcript of today's episode on the toptradersunplugged.com website. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Mike, before we jump into more of the specific topics and questions that we will cover today, I just want to start out by acknowledging you and, and thank you for being on the podcast today. I, um, I still remember when I visited your offices, you know, about 17 years ago, because it left such an impression on me uh, because of its uniqueness. So, of course, I'm interested to hear whether your offices are still located in this wonderful 17th century gristmill that you renovated so beautifully.
1: Uh, they are. They are. We're uh, now going on close to 20 years in here
0: fantastic and and speaking on 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 uniqueness um i think it's fair to say that you do things a little bit different to many of the other systematic investment managers and and uh, this will certainly shine through our talk today so i think our audience is in for a real treat and and uh, i think we should just jump right into uh, to today's topics if that's okay with Great. you Excellent. Thank you. Mike, your journey has been uh, long and distinguished, spanning over nearly 40 years of trading, as well as being a a best-selling author of the book Jackass Investing and and not forgetting an internet pioneer. And it's my impression that these different experiences play an important role in, in what you do today from a trading point of view. So perhaps you could take us back to the beginning and and tell us this fascinating story and and of course a bit of background on Brandywine as a firm and and its evolution over the years.
1: Uh certainly. Yeah, I <clears throat> I founded Brandywine in 1982 and I had been trading for a few years prior to that, just myself on a discretionary basis. And throughout the 1980s, traded um you know continuing to do more of a discretionary trading, uh, but with some uh, support from computers and and other research to kind of position my my trades. The the other thing that was I think key to me and it was it was just a nice uh, experience through the the eighties was that I had started um, some funds with some other managers as well. One of the early ones that I came uh, came in contact with, I, I sought him out actually was Dick Donchian, who a lot of people uh, acknowledge I guess is the the grandfather trend following trading. Absolutely. And, <clears throat> Yeah, he was at Shearson at the time, and I went up and met with Dick and started putting a fund together that that Dick would manage. Um, I would be the pool operator; he'd be the CTA on it. And we got well down that path before Shearson put a end to that. They didn't want, you know, some young punk uh, <laughs> me, you know, running a fund with one of their brokers on it. So, unfortunately, we didn't we weren't able to put that together. But my hope was to complement my own trading with funds that would be managed by some other uh, traders. And, and really more of it was from a business standpoint to help smooth out the the, the revenues to the firm. So I did end up in 1984 meeting um, uh, another trader by the name of Paul Tudor Jones, and I allocated some capital to him. Uh, I had met in 82 uh, John Henry and allocated some capital to him. So I did have a couple other funds that were out there managed by uh, some other managers. And so it was a nice experience through the 80s with my own trading the research I continued to do, uh, the uh, sort of ability to be, you know, on the, uh, the 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 front of the stage with some of the early pioneers in in the hedge fund industry with 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 Paul and with John, and <clears throat> I carried that into the 1990s as well when I set up a fund and we were the the, the first outside investor for for TransTrend, on a fund that they launched when they. Uh, launched their company in 1992.
0: Wow. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah,
1: so <clears throat> so it's been you know kind of a nice experience in, in seeing what some of these other people are doing as well. And uh, what what I did through the 80s, I started realizing with the discretionary trading, which was round the clock, that I really, <clears throat> in order to get more predictable performance, instead of what I refer to as the ultimate black box, which is you know a brain, and not really knowing day to day exactly you know what how that brain was going to react to certain market conditions and environments. I really wanted to systematize the approach. So we we sat down in the late 80s, put together a research project that over the next few years became rather intensive and extensive and developed a systematic trading model that was very different at the time. And, And even today, I look at it and I realize that there's so many things we did then which is 25 years ago now that people still are not doing today, and I believe give us a real nice edge. But we we systematized the approaches and we launched a brand new and benchmark program in
0: 1991. Yeah, and um, would you say even at that time you were you know influenced by what you'd seen from these great traders that you were allocating money to?
1: it was nice having that experience and exposure. But, you know, what I realized was that they were doing things very differently than the way I thought of doing things. Okay. You know, as a, Paul Paul Jones was, you know, very much a discretionary trader. And uh, as often as he tried to systematize his approaches, I don't think he could quite capture what it was that he was doing on a discretionary basis. He had, he had just such a, and uh, still has, I think, an, an innate intuition, you know, for for markets. And mm-hmm above all else, he just had a, a, an enormous discipline for being able to manage risk uh, in his portfolio. Um, you know, John, <clears throat> obviously, John Henry was one of the early pioneers in, in trend following, and uh, it's a fairly straightforward approach. It's a sound return driver, but it is only one return driver. Um, you know, so I could pretty much have a, a, a good idea what his positions were without even looking at my, my brokerage statements. Sure, sure. Uh, <clears throat> and TransTrend, trend, you know, I... Um, came into contact with Transtrend when I was doing the research for our benchmark program and uh, realized that they also were involved in the the belief of the broad strategy and market diversification Now we take it a little bit differently than they do. they tend to be I believe more technical I don't know today exactly what they do, but you know at that time and we have more fundamental basis uh, strategies in our portfolio but uh, we still shared that philosophy that essentially there is a free launch and that's portfolio diversification. <laughs>
0: And the benchmark program was that systematic um, and, and completely without discretion, or, or did you keep some of the sort of the, your discretionary trading in there?
1: No, we didn't. It was fully systematic. But what we did was look at a lot of the types of trading that I did through the ni- through the eighties and try to capture that in a systematic fashion. So, for example, we had you know a number of strategies that were um, based on. Um, market reaction to news events or reports, because I traded a lot of uh, that type of event reaction sure. in my sure. discretionary trading. Um, so we systematized the approach, uh, captured it in the best way we possibly could, and included that in the benchmark program. So there were there were a number of strategies in benchmark that were based on sort of that intuitive or discretionary feel, but instead of relying on uh, you know the the black box of the brain to interpret everything correctly each day. Uh, it followed, you know, rigid set of rules to be able to repeat the process, you know, every time it recurred.
0: And 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 so, in 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 that sense, just just to be clear, were you convinced even at that time, early on, that if you were going to be successful from an investment management point of view, you had to be systematic? Was that something that just was obvious at that time, or? Or was it, it more it was, an operational yeah. operational issue where you say, okay, what's well, actually easier if I can do it uh, systematically? Because you know the systematic side of things are partly, I think, an operational issue, but it's also an emotional issue. in oh, my absolutely. In my, yeah.
1: yeah, no, no. I mean, the the one thing you get that you get from systematic. I mean, you get a lot of things, but the the one main thing that I think would benefit the majority of traders out there is the um, discipline that. that Brings to the, to the trading. Yeah. It's you can sit there and say as much as you want uh, as a discretionary trader. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut my losses at these levels. Um, I've, I've got a bad trade. I'm gonna get out when it does this. Uh, but not everybody does that. And and you may do that for a while. But at some point, you you there's that constant battle where you're sitting there saying, but it's a great position. <laughs> I've got a great position. And uh, you know I've been reading some books about the financial crisis, and one of the things that you see there that's Um, The same as what you had with long-term capital is that just that utter breakdown in risk management discipline. And it's easy for a person to sit and rationalize why, you know what, the, the risk management wasn't designed for this scenario, or this was a great trade you know 10% loss ago it's even better now <laughs> yeah. you know so i'm certainly not going to get out of it today and and just ride it into the ground so the the one thing if there's nothing else that you get from systematic trading is the disciplined risk management approach uh, to trading
0: sure no absolutely and so the brandywine benchmark program that ran uh, until 1998 i think tell me a little bit about sort of your experience during that time, and and, uh, and then you you moved on to, to other things, uh, as, as I remember.
1: Sure. Yeah, so be- Benchmark was, when we went out at, with Benchmark program, it was really interesting because we, we funded it with a million dollars in 1991, and we, we had a lot of confidence that what we were going to get performance-wise was going to be fairly similar to what we tested it to perform it like. And sure. the the reason was because of the methodologies that we developed, not only in our back testing of the trading strategies, but in the portfolio allocation model. And, and I'll talk about that for a sure. second. When, when we went out in 19, the late 1980s, knowing that we were going to have dozens of trading strategies, we we're going to be trading across dozens of, eventually over, well over 100 markets in the portfolio, the, the first thing we needed to know was how we're we going to allocate across those strategies and markets in the portfolio. And so we went out and we looked at some of the the standard, conventional, accepted, I guess, uh, methods for portfolio modeling, such as mean variance modeling, the Markowitz type modeling and, and that everybody's doing, looking at Fishing Frontier analysis. And we hired some of the, the, the brightest people out there to help us create portfolios um, based on those methodologies. And one of the first results I got back from one of those uh, researchers was uh, the, the results of how to allocate across, it was about 15 different strategies, maybe 30 different markets. And the results came back with a high concentration of one of the strategies traded in one of those markets, a few other strategy market combinations, and then pretty much else, everything was a null set. Um, There were no allocations. So when I called him on that, I said, okay, obviously, these results aren't right. (laughs) I can't do this. You know, it's not going to work going forward. His response to me was, that's the perfect answer. And I started realizing that what they considered perfect was a mathematical elegance, you know, a level of mathematical perfection that had nothing at all to do with what I was trying to accomplish, which was to create a trading program where I could look at its back tested performance and have a high level of confidence that that was gonna occur again in the future. Yeah. So I sat down for the next oh, six months to a year. And we had a number of people working on this, but it ended up really coming down to more of an intuitive result. And what I realized with that was that the question that was being asked by everybody that was doing portfolio modeling then and continuing to today was wrong. They were asking, how do we achieve the most optimal performance? Yeah. And they got that. Mm-hmm. But they, what they, the question was that they should have been asking was, how do I get the most predictable performance? Yeah, Nothing else matters. If you've got optimal returns that you don't know are predictable going into the future. Who cares? Sure. And, and so what you found was that people were fixing their results. They would get answers back, the perfect result like I got from my one researcher, and then they would modify it. They would say, well, we won't allocate more than 5% to any strategy market combination, or we'll, we'll add a little bit of these other things, even though they don't really get much of an allocation because we know they diversify the portfolio and they add value. My response to that has always been, if you get results back that you know are wrong, don't tweak the results. That's the same as putting earrings on a pig. <laughs> you know, what you've got to do is go back and fix the original model. Yeah. And so that's when we came up with the predictive diversification portfolio allocation model, and we use it t- today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no we're certainly going to talk uh, a a a lot more about that. Um and uh, but just briefly uh, Mike if you would just take us uh, through uh, the next uh, iteration of of your career after 1998 um and um, because I think also maybe that's you know partly influencing you know when you returned to uh, to managing money uh, a few years ago.
1: Yeah, definitely. It, um <clears throat> it, In 1996, end of 1996, I started a company called Spree.com. Spree was a uh, early pioneer in e-commerce, and we viewed it—we really referred to it as an e-commerce community, because Spree allowed people to come in, and set up their own storefronts, sell products off of those storefronts. Spree managed all the back end of that for them, and pretty quickly, by mid '98, Spree had grown to be in the seventh most trafficked e-commerce. Company in the world. Wow um, So it, it it became a bit of a, um, a a tail wagging the dog, where I thought <laughs> Spree was going to be a side project. When I when I launched Spree, I had a couple dozen employees in Brandywine. By mid ninety eight, late ninety eight, we had over eighty employees in Spree. Yeah. So it it now was three times as big as as Brandywine was, and. We started getting acquisition interest from a number of companies that uh, you know were looking at buying buying spree and so I, I really ended up focusing a lot of my attention on spree. I brought in some additional uh, other people to manage Brandywine. and it it really was a it was a great experience and a, a sad experience at the same time because Brandywine was is and still is my my first love and my my you know my first primary interest, and I was not able to stay running that at the same time that i was trying to you know hitch a ride on the spree i mean it was just it was a it was a roller coaster it was crazy um so i needed to be there on the spree side and i guess i overestimated the amount of sort of corporate continuity and corporate memory there would be with me stepping away from brandywine because it radically changed over the next two years and the research group that i put in place was replaced by a researcher doing equity research, another one doing futures research because we had some equity programs as well. And it became more of a conventional type firm in the way it did its research. Okay. And so Spree Spree was uh, you know a great company, a great experience. And I got out of Spree at the end of 1999, early 2000, when we had venture capital money come in. I set up a company called Mind Drivers, which was essentially taking on the the other early stage technology businesses that had grown up around Spree. And I ran that through the 2000s and in 2007 sold one of those companies and started the path back to doing investments, you know, liquid investment trading again. Um, So really there was about almost a a decade period where I still had a foot in the door with the trading side, but it wasn't the immersive experience that it had prior to that or or subsequent to that.
0: Sure. And, And just out of curiosity, I mean, did you... For your own uh, sort of uh, part, did you did you continue sort of uh, any systematic trading during these years, or, or did you simply walk away from trading uh, while you were doing the the internet side?
1: We had it. We had a mix. We had one fund that uh, when I got back into Brandywine, we were managing that was a. Our largest product at the time, we, the the futures trading had essentially dissolved at that time, and sure. that's really my fault. I had I had promoted Brandywine as being a benign dictatorship, and when they saw that, I stepped away. Our <laughs> investors stepped away as well, um, so that that was a bit of a, the corporate continuity issue that I had with that. that yeah. you know, we've resolved, uh, you know, today by bringing in a partner and doing some other things. But um, I I had one fund at that point that was doing mutual fund arbitrage. And we continued to trade that for a few years and then expanded on that by uh, running another fund that was trading that as well as the venture capital, uh, early stage investing uh, deals I was involved in. Uh, and that product in 2004 added some futures in a sub-account that traded for about two years. Okay. But we real you know, realized that unless we were going to be fully committed and focused on one type of trading, Sure yeah, it did make sense. So we refocused that fund entirely on venture capital, um, and that actually remains open today as a venture capital product. But uh, you know today, when we got back into trading, every, everything we're doing now is fully focused on our globally diversified liquid assets trading.
0: Yes, and, and, um, and, and of course, 2011 comes, and uh, in July you launch your, your current program, the Symphony Program.
1: Yes. Yeah. So Symphony. What was interesting about this process is when I made the decision to get back into trading, uh, on on a full time basis and commit to, you know, beginning the Symphony Brandywine Symphony program, <clears throat> I went back to the strategies that we had developed in the '90s, and there were about uh, maybe three dozen that were in the benchmark program, and pulled out, uh, you know, evaluated all the ones, pulled out the ones that I thought were still relevant today. There were some that became um, irrelevant uh, ones, for example, we had that was looking at freely traded interest rates, Fed controlled versus tre- freely traded. That in the 2009-10 period, when we were starting to redevelop the program, we realized there just wasn't the environment for that. Sure. They, they sure. you didn't have that's you know that that freedom of uh, interest rates in the in the environment. So there were there were strategies like that that we didn't even look at updating the testing on, but there were about two dozen that still remain relevant uh, today, and we updated the testing on those and the 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 great news about it, and I, I like to say it's you know the good and the bad, and the, you know the good side and the great news was that those strategies continued to perform as expected from 1999 through the 2009 period when we first started updating the the walk forward on those, as we had not only back tested them to perform through the 70s and the 80s, sure. but they actually performed with real money in the 1990s. So the, the strategies remain valid. Um, the the bad news as I like to point out is if I had just simply continued to run brandywine <laughs> in that fashion, I, I would have owned a, a baseball team today. Sure. Yeah. you know. So um, I don't I don't have the Boston Red Sox, but I, you <laughs> know, do have those strategies and and they're of enormous value. So yeah. we we went out, we raised uh, ten million in in a, to have non proprietary capital trading the initial seed account. <clears throat> I started trading that in July of of two thousand eleven, which was coincident. With the publishing of uh, my book, Jack S. Investing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, and today, um, can people come to you both through managed accounts and 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 fund vehicles, or or, or how does it? Uh, how do people come to you today?
1: Yeah. So either either way. So a managed account is a five million nominal account size minimum. If somebody and that's targeting about an eight percent annualized standard deviation with a low double digit return. So if somebody wants to take a five million dollar account and is willing to accept higher. You know volatility or risk in their uh, portfolio, they could they could notionally fund it, and you know we we could have as little as maybe one third uh, cash to the five million dollar investment. Then we also have um, two funds. One is our standard Brandywine Symphony fund that trades at the standard eight percent annualized standard deviation leverage, and then we have what we would refer to as a cash efficient product, which is essentially the same as notionally funding a managed account that trades at three times that standard leverage and that's sure. our brandywine symphony preferred fund and uh, those are able to be invested in at 100,000 dollar minimums
0: great and and how much does the uh, the program run uh, or manage in in total today
1: $30 30 million today
0: okay great <laughs> Uh, Mike I want to shift gear a little bit uh, on you and just um, you know uh, touch upon a little bit about uh, the the organization um, because uh, you as as well as I think many other firms um, I think you run a very lean infrastructure today and I guess a lot of that is based on on all the wonderful things we can do today with technology but but how do you view sort of, what to keep internally in the firm, um, you know, in our business, uh, and and what can be outsourced. How, how have you balanced those two things?
1: Yeah, there's two reasons that Brandywine today can be a lot smaller personnel-wise than it was in the 1990s. The, the one is what you're pointing out, <clears throat> is there, there's so much good technology now available to... Um, do a lot of the same things that we did with people in the past. Yeah. The second is that Brandywine already had such a great base yeah. of research um, that that we could pull on, and so we were able to probably get you know the same effect as far as diversification portfolio and the research with one fifth, one tenth the people that we yeah. had in the research yeah. group back then. Yeah. Um, on the the things that we can outsource today, um, and in the 1990s we built our own front-to-back research, trading, account reconciliation, uh, account management uh, program. Today, we have what we call Cadence, which is our uh, trading research and, and order generation system. And then we have, uh, now we've outsourced, not outsourced, but we licensed uh, DMAX, the books, to do all the account management side. Um, And and then you can go through, for example, CQG um, or PAT system or trading technology to do trade execution. Um, So you you don't have the same need for the the staffing of the trading desk that you had in the past as well. So we're able to operate with four full-times and (laughs) uh, some part-time people. Uh, today and I think we can you know maintain pretty lean operation, you know growing growing as uh, over the next year or two.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and in terms of uh, growth and and so on and so forth, looking at at the markets and the way you trade uh, the markets, is there anything to be said about an optimal size for the program? Is there anything where you would say you know we've designed it to be X amount under management and 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 probably not further than that or
1: well there, there are certainly markets that we trade in the portfolio today that um, have low lower liquidity than others such as we, we trade the livestock markets sure. uh, some of the other foodstuffs agriculturals that have lower liquidity in them the what the way we look at it is at what Asset levels. Will we be able to maintain, say, 100% optimal diversification, and how will that change as assets uh, increase? And you know, roughly, because we're we're so broadly diversified across uh, trading strategies and markets in the portfolio, um, we can probably get close to that half billion, third billion dollar range before we start allocating suboptimally to the markets in the portfolio. And then what will happen is, you know, that next tier going from half billion to say. Uh, Two billion, we may drop from being 100% optimally allocated to 80% optimally allocated in the portfolio. And Then it tends to sort of level off a bit after that because you, you, it, I mean, it drops a little, but for the most part, the markets that you remain able to be optimally allocated to, um, they're they're very liquid, so you can go up into the billions quite easily. And and you just continue to maintain the same position sizes, maximal position sizes, in those less liquid markets, which lowers their effect on the portfolio as your your AUM grows. But yeah. you know we we believe that you know for the first half billion or so we're 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 pretty good and able to be um, reasonably optimally allocated. But th- that's that's really a function of the fact that we've got so many strategies and markets in the portfolio. If we're sure. trading a narrower portfolio. You know, we'd hit that that threshold much
0: sooner. Sure, absolutely. Now, another area that I want to cover and talk a little bit about is sort of just track record from a very high level. Um, I mean, the symphony program, in my opinion, has a has a great track record. I mean, starting in two thousand and eleven, uh, has certainly been an interesting time to to launch a program. Um, and you know, I've obviously seen your numbers, and and la- they look great. Um, Uh, So obviously, I uh, invite people to look more into that. But I I want to ask you with such a long experience in in this industry, and and that's just really performance after 2009 in in the CTA space has, in many respects, been quite different to performance prior to 2009. And I mean of course you're probably one of very few in terms of the exception to the to, to this because your performance has been pretty strong uh in the last few years while many large managers who've been around for you know 2 or 3 decades have had um you know some some somewhat more of a challenge and and even some of them you know seeing their drawdowns uh you know expand quite dramatically um what's your sense and what's your two pennies about um you know performance in the last few years compared to uh, you know the much longer period that that sort of CTAs and trend following in particular has been 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 known for being quite a robust uh, investment uh, case
1: right so i can i can certainly talk in you know reasonable detail on what we do sure. um, to the extent that we want to reveal things and but i i can only surmise what might be going on in the rest of the, the people that are out there you know, registered as CTAs. And you know, with with Brandywine, our our approach is return driver based. So we're looking at sound logical return drivers that we can build trading strategies on and then diversify across those in a portfolio. So we we don't really limit ourselves at all to any style of trading. You know, if we think there's opportunity in trading against investor sentiment in the S and P, we'll develop strategies that capture that um, if we think there's things that I can do uh, like the event trading it is a discretionary trader in the 1980s uh, we'll develop strategies based on return drivers that that will do that <clears throat> so we've got uh, now dozens of different return drivers that are underlying the straight trading strategies in our portfolio so we end up with um, returns coming from a lot of different sources and you know that f- from our standpoint means that we kind of don't care about any specific environment that 's out there you know f- for for us it's the last three years are the same as the prior three years um, contrary to that, I think what i 've seen happen and, and it 's not just the guys that are out there and you know, the women that are registered to Ctas this is the investment industry in general is that people tend to latch onto a certain style that was successful, and they fine tune maybe a little too much um, their approach to being suited to that style. And when the markets change, the environment changes a little bit, that that's, that style falls out of favor, they lose money. So the example we've had in the the futures industry, if you can call it an industry, and I really kind of don't refer to it so much as an industry because everybody's independent, but there is a group of people that trade futures markets using trend following strategies because that was one of the return drivers that they looked at and said, wow, you know, over the last couple of decades, this makes money. And no different than equity managers who sit there and say, wow, this value thing makes money. I'm going to be a value investor. It's just one return driver. I mean, there's dozens more that they can employ. So they start out by limiting themselves to one return driver. And then they compound the problem from what I've seen by fine tuning that return driver to give them the best possible performance on that past data. And we, we don't have any return drivers that when it's properly constructed into a trading strategy, consistently make money over multiple year timeframes. They, they may make money over 50 years, but in a, any decade period, almost I would say any trading strategy that we have, have has decade long periods where it loses money. And <clears throat> the only way that you can avoid that in backtesting is to fine tune the parameters until you get to a point where you don't have those periods. I just read an article. It was interesting but troubling um, this past week. And somebody was talking about, this is somebody that's written a lot of articles in different uh, magazines about trading strategies and strategy development. It was talking about a strategy that they thought was really good, but over a four-year period, it had one year where it lost money the entire year, and it gave up as much as 20% of the overall profits made over that four-year period. So obviously nobody could actually trade that in real time. And I'm looking at that going, that's <laughs> that's just unbelievable. I don't have any strategy that is that good yeah. <laughs> in my portfolio. Sure. And so I think what happened is, Brandywine, everything we do, everything in our research is focused on predictability of performance first and foremost. If you don't meet that threshold, that you have a high – degree of likelihood that the future performance is going to match the past performance. E- even if it's bad, I don't care. I just need the predictability first and foremost. Yeah. Then we can sit down and figure out how to combine those things into a portfolio, whether they should be included in a portfolio or not. The rest of the industry, I, I, every article I've read, every person I've talked to, other CTAs, equity managers, I mean, it's across the board, and I, and academics, across the board, it's trying to find some sort of optimization, optimal performance on a trading strategy or an idea. And then they, the question is, okay, I know it's perfect here and it won't happen in the future. And they come up with some sort of a formula for how much they'll discount those returns and haircut the performance of that. And again, it's back to putting earrings on a pig. Sure. If you get results that you look at and you know they're wrong and you've got to haircut them to tell you what you think you're going to get going forward, don't even try. Yeah. Start over at the beginning again. Create something that's predictable. And don't fool yourself. You're going to develop strategies and they're going to have 10-year losing periods. Doesn't mean that the return drivers, not valid. Sure. It just means that that's what happens.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and in in a sense, it's just like looking at the equity markets. They can certainly go ten years without making any money. It doesn't mean that people don't like investing in equities. So.
1: That, that, that's right, and, and and what I talk about in the book, in the, my first chapter, is that's because in short periods, less than twenty years, in the U.S. equity markets, and and I, I think you could apply this globally too. But I did all my research on U.S. equity markets. The dominant return driver is investor sentiment. It has nothing to do with the fundamentals of the underlying companies. So that means that you could have a company that doubles its earnings over a 10-year period, but if investor sentiment turns negative over that period, you could have a decline in that stock price or the overall index. So essentially, you're saying that those returns are dominated by a single return driver, which is investor sentiment. And if you've got a single return driver driving your returns, you're going to have decade-long periods where it doesn't perform sure that's that's just what happens and mm-hmm. you, you can fix it you can you can add some filters and you know fine-tune the parameters to make it look like you wouldn't have lost money had you done those things but now you've just slashed the predictability performance so the results you're looking at historically have virtually no meeting going forward
0: yeah and i think this is also what i um alluded to it my in in the beginning where i said that i think it's fair to say that you do things um differently and 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 i really appreciate that so um so i want to i want to talk about if my understanding is correct i mean you kind of have these sort of five. I don't know whether you define them as return drivers, but you certainly have these five Ooh. themes in in the in in the in the model or in the program: fundamental, sentiment, event arbitrage, and alpha hedge. Can you can you talk a little bit about you know why these and 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 then we're gonna dive into to to maybe each one of them and and try and get people to understand what what you mean by it?
1: Okay, I'll start out by saying. Those are totally arbitrary classifications that we came up with. Okay. You know, so um, (laughs) – and you'll understand a little bit as we describe them more. But we have in in the portfolio dozens of individual return drivers. And for purposes of um, illustration or discussion with investors, we categorize those into those five – Strategy types, sure. and because they have certain characteristics that are similar, but within each of those strategy types, the trading strategies, with the exception of alpha hedge, have no relationship to each other as far as performance. So the return streams are totally uncorrelated, but they're based on something similar. Um, so the, yeah, so the idea is not so much we don't really allocate based on those strategy types; we allocate based on uh, each of the underlying return drivers in the portfolio. Sure, um, you know so. I can talk about different types but you know out of the well case give us an example of,
0: of a return driver and, and let's take it from there and sure. see where it goes
1: okay well we talked about sentiment and sentiment being the dominant return driver for stock market in periods of less than 20 years over 20 years you start getting a, a bigger contribution from actual corporate earnings growth as as a dominant return driver but it's really not until you're out in the mid 20s 30 year period where that really starts dominating the portfolio and sentiment takes the back seat. So if you look at it and you say that sentiment is a dominant return driver for equities in the short term, you can develop trading strategies based on that that return driver, that concept. And so one of the things that we do, and I, and I actually reveal an actual trading strategy on the website, companion website for my book, and it's a sentiment-based strategy that we developed more recently because it wasn't even available to be developed in the 90s. That's looking at money flows in and out of the aggressive and inverse U.S. equity and U.S. bond now, we've ex- extended that, ETFs. Okay. So, if you, so if you see a lot of money flowing into the triple leverage long and out of the double leverage short U.S. equity ETFs, you, you, the sentiment, it's telling you that the sentiment, people are voting for their money, the sentiment is getting bullish. Mm-hmm. And this strategy goes in and looks for extremes in that to short the market. And so it'll go. It it'll be very selective. It might, you know, make a few trades per year based on this approach, in in uh, any given market. And those positions will be held for a week, maybe a couple weeks at the most. It really, just until that return driver, which is the ex- excess sentiment, is wrung out of the market. So we we're not looking for a trend to develop or anything. We're just saying we're we're purely doing everything you can to as purely as possible capture that return driver.
0: But and if we take that as an example, so you see that that, that obviously cash is going towards uh, you know uh, equity ETFs or what, whatever it might be. But but how do you then implement a model? I mean, you're 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 now looking to go short that market. But what kind of indicators do you then use in order to to trigger that, um, because th- this is a sentiment, it means cash is going in one direction, but it doesn't obviously necessarily link directly to the price of whatever underlying instrument you want to trade.
1: Right, but remember, what we're trying to do is, in as p- pure a way possible, capture that return driver. So it, it, we could uh, we could change the strategy, and instead of simply shorting it when the return driver indicates, which is what we do. Mm-hmm. We could say, you know, we're going to wait until the market actually breaks down. We're going to wait until there's a key reversal day. Right. We could wait for some other technical indicator. What we've just done by doing that is turned it a little more now into being, say, a trend strategy. Um, you know, we're waiting for the short-term trend to, to turn, you know, before we do something. And we're not now purely capturing the return driver. We're right. capturing a combination of return drivers. So this is where I talk about predictability of performance. We, we have a high level of confidence that by keeping the degrees of freedom as small as possible and having that focus just on that single return driver, which is market sentiment, defined in this case by ETF money flows, that what the results we're getting historically have a high degree of probability they're going to recur in the future. Sure. And so that's that's all we care about. And then we look at those returns, those historical returns, and we say, okay, are we comfortable with those? And comfortable doesn't mean that they're great returns. It just means that, yeah, it looks like it captures some positive money over time. And, and it may be that in a five-year period, it made money, but it had drawdowns that were twice as big as money it made. Mm. I, I don't care. Sure. You know, it's a, it's a valid concept that's producing positive returns. And there will be periods we know that it'll go for five years, it'll go for 10 years, and it won't make money. As long as the concept is still valid, it's included in our portfolio.
0: Interesting. And um, before we talk about sort of overall how many return drivers and combinations and so on and so forth, um, do you have a sort of a, a similar example, uh, again, without giving away any details you're not comfortable with, but say a fundamental strategy? What 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 might that be?
1: Sure. Okay. So if, if you look at uh, your trend followers, a lot of guys will, you know, a lot of these CTAs will have trend following strategies that'll be. Um, short markets and see those markets trading down to really low levels. And instinctually, maybe intuitively, they're sitting there going, oh, you know, this is I don't really want to be short, you know, Nat gas at, at 250. I don't want to be short orange juice at 60 cents. Um, and but they they remain short. You, that's what trend following sure. does. And I, sure. and I don't disagree with that. I think that's if the valid strategy is to remain short because the trend is short, you stay with it. But at the same time, that unease is pointing out something else, that there's a fundamental bias that may start providing some support at certain levels in certain markets. So in the 1990s, we developed a strategy referred to as marginal cost of production. It's looking at commodity markets that have reasonably stable um, commodity or marginal cost of production that can be determined. And when those markets are nearing, approaching, going under that marginal cost of production, we trade them from the long side only. Okay. Now it doesn't mean that the portfolio might not be short from other strategies, but sure. that particular strategy is only going long and it's taking short term uh long only trades <clears throat> in markets that sell off like that. And it may accumulate multiple positions. It may exit some of those positions. And really the the effect of it is that over an average campaign, which lasts maybe six months for one of these strategies, um, it will be in and out of the market um A dozen or more times the average trade length is around 10 days so it'll buy it'll sell it'll buy some more it'll buy some more it'll sell some more and you know each of those trades is a week or two in length and the whole campaign of multiple trades might last uh, six months we'd it's a infrequent strategy there's times when markets are trading near their marginal cost production there's periods like the late 2000s where markets were substantially above the marginal cost production, and nothing sure. happened. Uh, our latest trade in this was in NatGas in January of 2012. <clears throat> we started putting some positions on. We got out of that a little bit and got back in, I think it was March or April. For the next few months, we're trading from the long side only as Nat Gas dropped from under $3 to under $2. Yeah. And you know, then as it finally rallied back out of that range, that strategy stopped trading. We were out of it. You know, picked up maybe 50 basis points on the portfolio um, from that strategy over that campaign period.
0: Sure, sure. And um, do you have an example of the uh, an, an event-based uh, strategy?
1: Yeah, so if event strategies, they can be... I've seen people trying to do event strategies in the past and they were very complex. And when I traded in the 1980s, I, I was looking at a lot of things going into, say... Um, well, when I started trading, it was 1979. And 79 into the early 80s, the M1 money supply was the report that people focused on. Sure. It, it really moved the markets. Um, when you got into the the 80s a little more, the um, the trade balance became a big number. And everybody's looking at that. And what I would look at was, okay, what, what are the expectations for the trade number? Um, what are the markets doing going into it? How did the markets react after, you know, immediately following it, then through the rest of the day? Um, and I'd start coming up with, you know, trade decisions based on that sort of plethora of information um when we started systematizing the approaches we're always trying to break it down to what is the key return driver we're trying to capture and we've come up with some pretty nice elegant little strategies that are looking at markets action and reaction to these reports to to come up with uh trade decisions so you know one that we had um Last year, I remember it was one where we bought deferred euro dollar contracts. I think I talked about this in our monthly report, based on the employment report, and we held that trade for a little over a month. And uh, it was it turned out it would be just perfectly timed counter trend trade, which is often what can happen with these event strategies. You'll have a at that point a downtrend going in the euro dollar contract, and the employment report came out, and that pretty much marked the low mm-hmm. for well, I think still to today in, in, in that in that contract, the deferred contract. So it's it's looking at the, the market reaction of those events for telling you how essentially you could classify this as a sentiment strategy because it's telling you how the short term sentiment has shifted based on that that report
0: release. I have I have two questions on, on 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 this topic. One is this is the trigger to get into a trade, but how do you get out? What what, what tends to, to trigger your exit for 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 a trade like this?
1: yeah so each strategy has its own entry and exit triggers and often what what we remember what we're trying to do is we're trying to capture the returns from a specific return driver yeah. you know so sometimes there's a there's a tail on it sometimes there's market action that indicates that 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 influence is over you know sometimes there's a subsequent report or something that will That'll trigger that difference. You know, so in the case of the first one we talked about with sentiment strategies, we're, we're really just trying to capture that extreme in sentiment. When that's wrung out of the market, uh, we want to be out. Yeah. You know, so you'll see that the money flows and the buys going on. And at some point, that kind of comes back again. And it, it subsides, you know, that, that overall sentiment enthusiasm that you had for being bullish on stocks. Mm. And when that subsides, we're out. It the the market might still be selling off, you know, and it might sell off for another month, two months, a year. We we don't care because the the return driver we were capturing there was purely sentiment. We want to capture that in as pure fashion as possible.
0: the The other question I had uh, was really more uh, relating to the the event strategy. Uh, do Do you find in today's world where news gets around much quicker and 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 more people have access compared to, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago when you came up with some of these ideas. Have some of these um, strategies changed their, if, you know, effectiveness or, or, or do you find that they actually work just as well today as they did, uh, you know, when you first started using them?
1: Right. Well, first of all, <clears throat> I had the exact same questions 20 years ago. You know, information is moving much more rapidly today. People are able to process things and get information more quickly. Because if you look at the 1990s, the you know 1990, for example, to 1970, Mm. the exact same scenario that you have today. Looking, you know, the 2000 teens to 1990, you know, it's it's continued. It it, we haven't had since I've been involved in trading, a period where you've had uh, slower information flow. Sure. It's always been increasing. Yeah. Um, so what, what we find is that, you know, as I mentioned in the early 1980s, late 1970s, you had M1 money supply is like the key indicator. Well, the way we develop a model isn't to say, okay, specifically this, this happens. It's, it's looking to determine first and foremost, I guess, whether or not that indicator is still valid. So today I could in, uh, incorporate event strategies using M1 money supply and I can virtually guarantee you there would be no trading in them, even though it's the same strategy that we're using for employment report, which is getting, it's been fairly active the last few years. Uh, an- another strategy we do have in there is looking at CPI. Okay. I don't think the CPI strategy has made one trade since we relaunched uh, Brandywine Symphony for Trading in, in July 2011. So, so so the the strategy, the concept, it's the concept is still valid and it can be incorporated in the portfolio and included in the portfolio. It doesn't mean that it'll re, it'll remain active. It's valid, but it, but it may not be active. Sure. And, and that's up to the strategy to determine whether or not, you know, it, it should be just, just same case with the ETF money flows. You know, we could plug that in there, but if it starts turning out that they're no longer uh, a, a good measure of sentiment in indication of sentiment, the strategy will stop making trading decisions yeah. based on that information.
0: Yeah. You also have a um, a theme called directional arbitrage strategy. How how does that uh, fit into to this?
1: Yeah. So dire- directional arbitrage is using what would be considered arbitrage techniques to take directional trades in markets. So we're not actually specifically arbitraging between. Uh, well, there are some opportunities there, but in directional arbitrage, where we're not specifically going after, say, um, uh, an arbitrage between one market or to another market, but we may be taking a directional position in one market based on sure. some price action in in another market. Okay. Um, if you if you if you look at it sort of a a specific sense, you know, with people using the carry trade and the currency markets, so that that's a form of an arbitrage that gives you an indication that. You know, there may be directional biases in certain markets based on interest rate differentials. You know, so there, there's, there's some opportunities there. And there, there's opportunities across yield curves. There's opportunities across the, just the entire price curve of commodities, whether in backwardation or contango, you know, that can yield directional opportunities, um, you know, based on the differences between contract months or, or specific market prices.
0: Sure. And the final one, alpha hedge strategy.
1: So Alpha Hedge <clears throat> are momentum strategies. Uh, a, lo- a lot of people would refer to them as trend following. We, we don't for one specific reason. For us, <clears throat> Alpha Hedge is inten- it's an integral part of the portfolio that allows us to do a lot of the things we do in the portfolio that are non-directionally triggered. So if we end up with a fundamental strategy that's long Nat Gas, for example, and the Nat Gas market just continues to sell off, well, the Alpha Hedge strategies will be short. Sure. And they'll be offsetting that risk. And as long as each individual strategy has its own um, relevant return driver and a positive return expectancy over a long time, and I'm talking decades, then we feel comfortable including those in portfolio. In the short term, though, you have periods where you may just be fundamentally off uh, on, a, on a direction in the market. The alpha hedge will never be off on a directional trend. Sure. It'll always be in the direction of the trend. Now, Now, what's interesting, and this is, it goes back to a lot of talk I hear about trend followers having a difficult period and you know underperforming and losing money over the last few years, and maybe that has to do with quantitative easing or a number of things. Um, our alpha hedge strategies have been profitable since we started trading in July of 2011. If we did nothing but trade trend following, essentially, we'd have a, a nice positive return going. Um, it's been enhanced from the other strategies in the portfolio, which is the whole intent of broad strategy diversification – but that's why I look at the performance of the industry over the last few years and sort of the ex- explanations of why the industry hasn't performed as well as it did in you know the prior couple decades and To me, it has less to do with the environment and probably more to do with how people have fine tuned their strategies to have optimized on the past data rather than allowing them to be pure and and raw and sometimes poor performers um over you know future periods so it looks to me like a lot of the industry has probably just gotten a little too fine-tuned and curve fit on the past data and then going into this period ended up with uh, negative performance
0: yeah i mean it's interesting i mean i think certainly from my view I, i i mean i do think the i do think the trends are a little bit different in the last few years i do think they're a bit shorter i do think that they're a bit more erratic and i do think that the Manipulation or government intervention has, um, you know, had its uh, influence, uh, and and I'm, you know, I think it's it's great that your trend following strategies essentially are, are immune to this and continues to perform. Um, but but I, I mean, I certainly from from where I sit, I, I do think it's a bit different to to what we saw uh, prior to uh, to 2008. Uh, but I think more importantly on that subject, just to give my own uh, uh, view here. I think that a, a big part of whether you made money or whether you didn't make money in the last few years has really been the sector weights, because if you're a fully diversified manager, um, you know it, th- there has been quite a lot of the sectors that that really hasn't you know given you that many good opportunities. Whilst there's been one or two sectors, namely the equity markets and the bonds, that where you know the good action has been. So, I mean, I do think that there is you know, some influence being in terms of, uh, you know, how diversified uh, some of these managers, because of course, some managers have done well in the last few years. But, you know, when I see the names, and I think about what I believe they do, um, I think they are pretty heavily exposed in in fixed income and and, and equities. But that's just my view, again, sitting from the outside.
1: Right. Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, definitely things are different. They're always different. And I guess the question is, are they differently different? And so I, I look at, you know, our performance in uh, momentum-based strategies and our, our portfolio, our whole philosophy is to maintain balance across the portfolio, across the strategies and the markets. You know, so we've got 120, 130 markets that we're trading in. Uh, some of those and, and some of our alpha hedge strategies have lost money consistently over the last three years, but as, as a, a group you know, as a, as a strategy type, they, they've made money and they've done it in a reasonably diversified fashion. Um, they've made some money in the currencies. They made some money in interest rates and stock indexes, as you point out. Yeah. But they've, they've made some, I mean, there's been some great trends in the metals. Yeah. You know, I mean, gold had great trend up and a great trend down during that period. Um, some of the agriculture markets have had just tremendous trends, yeah. you know, that trend followers could have captured had they been, you know, first, I guess, balanced across all those sectors and not Dominating, you know, one sector or another, and had they had, I guess, uh, a very not fine-tuned, but very broad sort of parameter structure that they that they were using, so that they weren't fine-tuned to the specific uh, types of trends that we had, maybe in the prior few years.
0: Yeah i mean and, and but I, th- I think i think the the other thing maybe to to uh, just just add to that um and that is in terms of these trend following strategies that you have in 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 alpha hedge i mean my guess is that you might also um be more on the longer term side uh, compared to uh, you know, many CTAs whom, you know, probably are more in the, uh, what we would call the medium term in terms of, uh, you know, how the models work. Because I, I do believe certainly, I mean, in the long run, I think, you know, long term trend following is probably more profitable than medium term trend following. The problem is that, you know, it, it also comes with a certain level of volatility and drawdown that many investors don't really like. And therefore, uh, the pure trend followers have, Sort of shied away from the, from being too long term, uh, even though they know that that's probably the right thing to do. But so I I, I, might, I would guess that that you probably trade uh, your your alpha strategies a little bit more on the longer term side. I don't know whether that's a, a, a correct observation or not.
1: Well, it's a it's a it's actually a really real mix. I mean, we do have some that trade with holding periods that would be say a uh, a losing trade that's many months in a winning trade that could be a year or more. But we also have um, rather short term, okay. um, you know, that are, you know, winning trade might be two months long, you know, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. for trend following, which is, you know, pretty short term. I, sure. I, I think that the, a lot of the problem does get to the, the fact that people don't like to trades, as you pointed out, which is, I think, a great comment that people don't like to trade some of the more difficult strategies to trade. And I think one of the things that's helped make trend following traders successful over the last few decades is that it's not an easy strategy to trade. Um, you know, so you've, I mean, you've got to sit there and, you know, ride through multiple years sometimes of just terrible performance and then wait for that quarter where it all comes back and you yeah. make money. I, I, I think by maybe trying to just focus on trend following and smoothing returns within that style of trading. People have started curve fitting their strategies a little too much on the past data to make it look like they had solved the problem. Sure. When in reality, all they did was lower their predictability of performance. Yeah. You know that the, there, there's nothing worse than doing that because then going forward, you, you don't know what you're going to get. And and I think that's what surprised me a lot of people who have doesn't overly fit their strategies. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.